Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we continue our series, Psalms of Refuge. So turning your Bibles to Psalm chapter 8, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, The Glory of God in the Dignity of Man. The first group of psalms in the book of psalms are songs of lament. Psalm 3 to 7 have descriptions of the wicked and on the damage they do to the righteous. They have words like, O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising up against me. And then, in reaction to the actions of the wicked, we hear David praying to God, Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to my cry. That's why they're called songs of lament. But more than simply being songs of lament, they are songs of hope. See, David expresses confidence that he can take refuge in God, and God will be David's shield and will protect him in the day of evil. Psalm 3, verse 7 says, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies in the cheek. And so this is hopeful. David knows that in time, God will rise to his defense. God has become his shelter, and he will rest secure. But the opening psalms of the Psalter are also songs rich in theological truth. They tell us things about God. They say salvation belongs to God. You're not a God who delights in wickedness. Indeed, he feels indignation because of evil. And furthermore, God has reserved a day of justice. And what I have given is, I think, a fairly representative summary of Psalms 3 to 7. Indeed, we'll hear more of this kind of talk as we go beyond Psalm 8, Psalm 9, and beyond. But Psalm 8 is different. In the middle of these psalms of lament, we have a psalm that breaks the mood. Yet in the present hour, there is great evil, but Psalm 8 simply worships God. This is a psalm about the glory of God, but in Psalm 8, it's about the glory of God and the creation of man. In short, while it may be true that human beings, because of sin, do wicked things, it's also true that notwithstanding the reality of sin, human beings are still made in the image of God, and this truth is to God's glory. See, in order to understand Psalm 8, we do well to imagine David looking up at the night sky and marveling at two things. See, first, he marvels at the vastness and grandeur of the created order. But this consideration leads him to ask a very important question. What is the place of humankind in the midst of such vastness? Now, David's questions do seem very contemporary, don't they? I mean, the Hubble telescope has shown us that the universe is mind-bogglingly vast. Our solar system is but one of a vast number of solar systems, and that in itself is stunning. And our planet is but one small planet in the midst of a vast ocean of planets, planets beyond the ability to number. And then the question, what is man? That's of no small significance. There are those in our world that suggest that, you know, if our world were to explode today, that the universe would hardly notice. It would be a a matter of little interest. It would be just one more small explosion in the vastness of the cosmos. But if that's true, and I think it's not, but if it were true, then the existence of man would be of no unique significance. But the Bible tells us that human beings are the crown of God's creation. And it might then be asked, well now, I mean, the more we learn about the universe, the less likely that seems to be. But yet, That's exactly what this wonderful psalm, Psalm 8, indicates. So let's begin reading the entire psalm, Psalm 8. It begins with, To the choir master according to Gittith, a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory above the heavens. 
Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? You've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Now, you might have noticed that the psalm begins as it ends. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Now then, those bookends to this psalm indicate the theme. This is a psalm about the majesty of God. Now, if you have your Bible in your hands, you're going to notice that the psalm says, O Lord, Lord, being in capital letters. You know, whenever we find that in our Bible, we know that's a reference to the covenant name of God. O Yahweh, our Lord, it says, or O Yahweh, our Adonai. Now, we might translate that to mean, O God of the covenant, the God whom respect and honor are due. Your name is magnificent in all the earth. That's what it says. And David means... Your name is proven to be a marvelous name when one considers what you've created in this earth. And I'm overwhelmed by your greatness. Examine creation, says David, and you'll find it to be orderly, showing the design of the one who has made it. Well, I would argue that in our day, we should say this with even more enthusiasm than David did. I mean, the more we discover on this earth, well, the more we discover an overwhelmingly intricate design the complexity of nature, the interconnectedness of nature. The way in which all nature operates leaves us with no other conclusion that what we are looking at is intelligent design. See, the truth is that the more we discover, the greater are the mysteries of nature. That is to say, when we discover something about nature, it's not that we come to the end of everything that there is, you see. Rather, With each discovery comes a greater awareness of the vastness of what's left to discover. You see, science hasn't explained away the need for God. Science has shown us that there's greater complexity, there's more mystery, far more than we'd ever imagined. Each new scientific discovery opens a door, not the explanation of everything, but instead to seemingly endless further discoveries to be made. Imagine with each one thing we discover comes another 100 things that we don't yet know. And David would say, amen. And for Christian science, well, it should never be seen as a threat, but rather as a reason to pause and fall to our knees and say to God, you are more magnificent than I had ever imagined. And then having framed the psalm with those bookends, David now gets to work in describing what he's talking about. Then in the last part of verse 1, David moves from the earth to the heavens. You've set your glory above the heavens. Now, when the Bible uses the word heaven, or as it's used here, the heavens, it can refer to different things. I mean, we can think of heaven as the dwelling place of God, but David's not thinking about it in that manner. Rather, he's speaking about the cosmos. The cosmos reflects your glory. And yet, says David, you have set your glory above the cosmos. So what does that mean? Well, in Psalm 8, David is going to confine his discussion to the greatness of God, the discoveries made in the natural order of things. But he says, I can't confine myself to saying that the glory of God is best seen in the cosmos. The glory of God is far above what we can discover in the cosmos. You know, a little reflection is going to help us understand this. 
Learning from our Bible the attributes of God should lead us to think that there is far more glory ascribed to God by learning those attributes than we can by studying nature. That God has revealed himself as God whose being is not dependent on anything. That God never changes in any respect. That God is an eternal being that he's present to all spaces at all times, that God has no spatial dimensions, that God is righteous, that he's loved, that he's just, that he only speaks truth, that he's jealous for his glory, that he's omnipotent, that all his actions are premised upon his righteousness, that God is triune, and that in the fullness of time, God sent his son into the world so that all who believe in him would have eternal life. I mean, nature teaches us none of those glories. Yes, God has set his glory above the cosmos, but even more, David says there's something to learn about God's glory in the cosmos. And so in verse 2, when David gets back to talking about the created order, we find that he wants to contrast something that seems small up against something that looks so vast. Look again at verses 2 and 3. In verse 2, he speaks about something that comes out of the mouth of babies. And then in verse 3, he speaks about the heavens, the moon, and the stars. So what is David doing? Well, consider a little baby, he says, or Consider the vastness of the cosmos, and in both cases, you'll be filled to overflowing with words of praise for the Creator. Both the micro and the macro reflect His glory. But we might wonder what verse 2 could possibly mean. I mean, he says, Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. I mean, how do babies silence the voice of God's foes and cause the avenger, well, in this case, the man who wants to rebel against God? I mean, how do babies' mouths put an end to the designs of God's enemies? And here's what I think David is saying. Look, babies are weak. Babies are dependent. Babies are helpless. The Hebrew speaks about sucklings, those who have not yet been weaned. And yet, when one considers the wonder and complexity of the birth of such a helpless being, and if one is to be truthful about these matters, one should cover one's mouth and consider the wonder that's evident in the creation of every single child, even the sucklings. See, what God has done is that he has showcased his glory in every child, and if we're honest, that should fill us with wonder at the strength of the God who has made them. This month, don't forget to ask for the Time of Your Life five-message Bible teaching series as our free Bible resource on CD. As you listen along and examine what the Bible has to say about how we use the time you've been given, you'll be equipped and encouraged to make your days matter for eternity. When you request your copy of The Time of Your Life, would you pray for more and more people to access these life-transforming riches in the pages of the Bible? Every day this teaching, verse by verse, reaches out across Canada and around the world on radio and print and online so that all might receive and experience a life filled with purpose. Back to the Bible Canada is so grateful for your support. To order the time of your life or make a gift to support this ministry, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Now then, David moves from infants to the vastness of the universe, and it's here at this point that David asks the inevitable question. It's the same question we ask. You see, I remember well when I first saw the first images of the Hubble telescope. I was in awe of its beauty. 
And whether it's dust or gases or spiral galaxies or the glowing tendrils of a massive star, in each case, everyone who observed those images simply hushed their voices and contemplated a beauty that had never been seen before. The work of the fingers of the most gifted artist there was. You know, he's not only scientifically designed everything, he's designed them as an expression of loveliness. But all this vastness does lead us to a natural question, doesn't it? I mean, what is man? I mean, since this is so vast and so beautiful, is there something special left to be said about the human race? Are we really the center of God's affections? I mean, perhaps we could say that if we believe the universe was small or that the earth was at the center, but it appears not to be. Are we not just one more thing that God has made? I mean, what is man? Or to put it another way, is there any special importance to man? Is not our significance dwarfed against such a reality? See, more than one scientist has concluded exactly that. I have to argue that that we're the crown of God's creation. Now, to many, that just now seems like a stretch, a little bit of arrogant ignorance. No, we're nothing. At least that's how some people think. You know, David didn't think that way. Look again at verse 5. He says, Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. And we need to stop here and recognize that verse 5 has been variously translated. You know, the ESV says you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. And the NIV says you've made him a little lower than the angels. But the NASB, or the New American Standard Bible, says you've made him a little lower than God. I don't need to tell you that's a wide diversity in how you translate Psalm 8 verse 5. So what does the Hebrew say? Well, it says you've made him a little lower than Elohim. And in most circumstances, we simply translate Elohim as God, but not always. There are a few occasions when the word is translated differently. So, for example, Exodus 12, verse 12 says, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. So, here in Exodus 12, 12, the word Elohim is not translated as, you know, the one true God, but the false gods or the idols that Egyptians relied upon. Now, consider Psalm 82, verse 1. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. Now, but the NASB translates that as he judges in the midst of rulers. Now, if that translation is correct, who are these rulers? See, a great many Bible translators think this refers to the heavenly beings or the angels. And that would include, you know, the cherubim and the seraphim and along with the archangel, so forth. You know, it's in the council of the angels that God holds forth judgment. And they're just to complicate matters further later on in that same psalm, Psalm 82, verse 6, the term Elohim seems to refer to earthly rulers who seem to be enamored by their own power, and they're told they're going to die like men. And furthermore, Psalm 82, verse 6 comes up in the teaching ministry of Jesus. See, I'm reading John 10, verse 34 to 36. Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law? I said, you are God's. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you're blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? Now, you know, it takes more time than we have available to examine John 10, 34 to 36. But for our purposes, would you please notice that Jesus affirms that the correct translation of the word Elohim that's found in Psalm 82, verse 6, is a translation that calls the human rulers of this world gods. And that brings me back to Psalm 8, verse 5. 
See, when David says that God has made human beings a little lower than Elohim, does he mean a little lower than God or a little lower than the angels? See, I believe the correct translation should be that he has made us a little lower than the angels. And I'll give you that for two reasons. First, because nowhere else in the Bible are we ever told that human beings are just a little less than God. Indeed, the Bible indicates the exact opposite. I mean, one example would be Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9, where it says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And that's to say, there's an infinite distance between the eternal God and mortals, even though we're in the image of God. And a second reason I would translate Psalm 8, verse 5 as angels is because this very verse is quoted in the New Testament. Hebrews 2, verse 7 quotes Psalm 8, verse 5 and translates the word Elohim as angels. Now, I know that the New Testament is quoting from the Septuagint version of the Old Testament, which is, you know, a Greek translation of the Old Testament. However, the writer of Hebrews is inspired by the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit directed him to translate this verse as angels. Okay, all of that. Now, how is it then that David says we're a little lower than the angels or the heavenly beings? So on the one hand, we might say that we're not. I mean, after all, we're never told that the angels were created in the image of God, whereas we are told that human beings are. So in that sense, we might argue, look, we're not lower than the angels at all. But in another sense, we are. Angels are unfallen. Angels stand in the presence of God. They answer to him directly. They go directly out from the presence of God on mission for God, and then they return back to heaven and answer directly to him. They sit in on the counsels of God. We do none of those things. Angels don't die. We do. And we're flesh, subject to the fall, vulnerable, helpless, and so seemingly small against the vast ocean of the created realm. Yes, that's so, but says David, look, we're just a little lower than the angels. Well, how so? Well, look again at verses 6 to 8. Those verses say, You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. And you're going to want to notice the word dominion. If you're all biblically literate, you'll immediately go back to the words of God in the creation account in Genesis. See, Genesis 1.28 says, And God blessed them, that is, the man and the woman that he had created. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. That is, exercise rulership over the earth. God says, I created this earth and with it, I created every living thing. But of all the living things I made, it is to the man and the woman I give authority over this earth. Acting under my obedience, they are to learn how to govern all that I have made. See, we might also remember the tragedy of Genesis 3, fall into sin of man, and the serpent enters the garden. But not to fear. God has given the man dominion over all life. That is, the serpent is subjected to him. But then tragically, the woman and the man submit to the serpent. And that's the great tragedy. Made to rule all things. Man and women are now ruled by sin. But it's right here that this psalm takes upon itself messianic undertones. See, do you remember that I noticed that Psalm 8 is quoted in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament? Let me quote the entire section. It's Hebrews 2, 5 to 9. 
For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You've made him a little lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. See, I hope you got the point of that. Adam failed to secure his rightful authority over all that God had made. But a second Adam has come, Jesus, a second representative of the human race who obeyed the Father fully, died for our sins, rose again. He tasted death for us. So we now see that all things are in subjection to him. And he is the true representative of the human race. See, all who hope in Jesus will then, along with Jesus, be called one day to rule and reign with him in the future. In the future, it will not be just over the earth, but over all the works of God's hands, which of course means the cosmos. And so if you're staring into the night sky and overwhelmed with the vastness and grandeur of the whole thing and wonder what is man, then know this. It's not how big a thing is that determines its worth. It's what a thing has been made for that determines its worth. And we human beings, created in God's image yet ruined by the fall and yet still redeemed by Christ, have been given the majestic task of ruling over all the works of God's hands. So if you're looking at the creation and overwhelmed with majesty, remember this. Oh Lord, your name is majestic, so much so that you've created us. Thanks so much for your message, John. You know, I'm wondering, you know, as we learn more, as we know more, as, as what we know increases exponentially, what does that say about who we are as God's creation? Well, it, it says a number of things. First of all, who God is. God's greater than we had ever imagined. But for God then to say of us that you are created in my image and I've created a rule and reign uh, with Christ for all of eternity, I mean, it, it just exalts our position in the order of creation. I mean, we should look at it and be staggered that God has called us to such a great mission. And, uh, and, and that would, I would think, uh, give us so much more understanding of how great is the future that God has prepared for us. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Psalms of Refuge, right here on Back to the Bible Canada. Bible teaching you can trust. As time speeds by, it's even more important that we consider how we live. That's why I'm so grateful for friends like you who walk with us verse by verse through the Bible. The encouragement we received recently from Ruth reminds us of how precious this is. Dr. John's teachings are fascinating and really bring the Bible to life for me. I can almost visualize the scenes in my mind like watching a movie when I listen to him. I usually listen to the radio program at work and end up going home and rereading the passage he spoke about that day. And every time I see it through different eyes. What a great way to use the time we've been given. With minds transformed by the washing of God's Word, we're given different eyes and God's own heart to see the world we live in. 
If you'd like to support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, visit backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425.